today we're starting a new book, which is actually a very little letter. <laughs> Apparently, the author was the type of guy, he would rather have a face-to-face conversation with you as opposed to writing long letters. And so what happened was that he kept his correspondence here in 2 John short and sweet, and he fit all his thoughts on just one sheet of papyrus. Everything's right there. And so what does that mean? That means that 2 John is tiny. I mean, it has less than 250 Greek words in it, which makes it the second smallest book in the entire Bible. But not only that, it's kind of like a postcard. It's kind of like a, a quick note that you share with somebody that you love right before you visit them. And so as I briefly introduce 2 John, I wanna say regarding the author that uh, scholars believe that the apostle John is the one who penned this letter. Why? Because the same grammatical style, generally speaking, that you see in the Gospel of John, you see in these three little letters at the end of your New Testament. Regarding the date, scholars believe that he wrote it somewhere between AD 90 and 94, so end of the first century AD. Regarding the recipients, very interesting. He wrote, um, it says in verse one, to the quote-unquote elect lady. Right, so I'll explain that here in just a few minutes. Most importantly, the theme is straight, simple, and here's the theme. We'll put it up on the, on the slide for you on the screen. The theme of 2 John, we're waiting for it. There it is. The Father wants his children to walk in truth, love, and wisdom. How many of you guys know you're, you're a child of God this morning? Just say amen, right? Okay, so this is for you right here. The Father, your Father in heaven, he wants you and me to walk in truth and in love and in wisdom. Now this theme was very relevant for John's day because his culture did just the opposite. The people in the Roman Empire rejected truth. They rejected love, they rejected wisdom and instead of that, what did they do? More and more in the Roman Empire, they embraced lies, they embraced hatred, and they embraced foolishness, absolute foolishness. And what was the result? Well, eventually, the Romans reaped what they sowed. How many of you guys know, understand, and believe there's a law of life? Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. What comes around goes around. It's a principle in God's word, right? And so what happened with the Roman Empire? What happened was the Romans reaped what they sowed, and eventually they collapsed from within. Now, what caused the downfall of the Roman Empire? Well, historically, when you, when you look at it, ultimately it was the outward invasion of the Germanic tribes in the fifth century AD that did end the Western uh, Roman Empire. But ladies and gentlemen, please hear me this, this afternoon. Long before that, Rome was decaying from within, morally speaking, because they were rejecting truth, they were rejecting love, they were rejecting wisdom. For so long, Rome was like this strong wooden pillar, right? And nobody could knock it down. But what happened? They allowed the termites, so to speak, of inward moral decay to eat out the inside. And by the time these barbarian tribes came in the fifth century AD, it was like knocking down a piece of paper. Now, speaking about uh, rejecting truth 
and rejecting love and rejecting wisdom and speaking about um, Rome decaying from within. How many of you guys know, have noticed that America is looking more and more like the Roman Empire? I'm telling you, it's like, it's like, a, it's like somebody in the last 20 years just stepped on the accelerator regarding immorality, regarding the acceptance of lies and hatred and foolishness and rejecting truth and wisdom and love. More and more and more. And I know some of you are younger, right? And so you haven't seen it as much as some of us who are older have seen it. But just take our word for it. It's happening like at lightning speed. And people are embracing in our culture lies. Listen, gone are the days to a great extent of fact-checking the media. What happens is that people get on social media, right, and they see some kind of misinformation, and they take it at face value. They don't even check to see whether or not this is true. And all of a sudden, misinformation, they're getting all emotional about it, and the next thing you know, they're going down a path of destruction. That's, to a large extent, many people in our nation today. The embracing of lies, the embracing of hatred. Again, if you're younger, you haven't seen it, but, but those of us who are older, we see it now, and I tell you, it's almost at the extent, not quite, it's almost at the extent of the hatred of white racists in the civil rights movement who hated black people. That's almost how it's getting. I'm not talking about the race issue right now. I'm talking about other issues. There's so much hatred in America between individuals and between groups almost as bad as it used to be in the 50s and in the 60s. And that's not just accepting lies and accepting hatred, but it's accepting absolute foolishness. When you watch the news sometimes and you see a talking head say something, I don't know if it's just me, but it's like, what planet do you live on? How did you come to that conclusion? And the reason why, listen, the reason why is because they don't have the right worldview. They're looking at the world through the wrong lenses. That's what's happening in our nation today. And so what's gonna happen if we don't change? Well, eventually, just like the Roman Empire, we're gonna collapse from within. Moral corruption like termites is gonna eat away the United States of America and we will collapse. Somebody says, Pastor, you're being so dramatic. Listen, America's too strong. No one's ever gonna make us collapse. That's what the Roman Empire said. And where are they now? They're relegated to a history book. They no longer exist. So God forbid that the people in the United States of America think that we're so big and bad, right, that we don't think anyone could ever hurt us or touch us. Listen, the only reason that our nation exists is by the grace of God. The only reason we're taking breaths right now is by the grace of God, right? And so, what's the remedy for any culture that is experiencing inward moral decay? What's the remedy? The remedy is the same as it's always been. Acts 20, 21, repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, what needs to happen? Individuals, one by one, they need to repent and believe. It's never changed. It's always the same. Repent and believe. And then once individuals, right, experience a genuine conversion to Christ 
and they allow the Holy Spirit to work in and through them, what happens then? Then what happens is that um, their life is marked by a certain walk. What walk is that? A walk of truth, a walk of love, and a walk of wisdom, which God blesses. So in the upcoming weeks, we're gonna talk about the walk. And so today, we're talking about truth. That's verses one through four. Next week, we're gonna talk about love. That's verses five and six. Then Thanksgiving comes. Pastor Matt Messiano is gonna share a special message, and then I'll be back to talk about wisdom in verses seven through 13, and we'll wrap up 2 John, and we'll move to 3 John. Now, I had a laugh this week because 2 John is the second shortest book in the New Testament. It only has 13 verses, and yet I was able to pull out a three-part series from it. And so nonetheless, sorry guys, that's just who I am. All right, so the Christian life is a life of walking with Jesus. Now walk, the word walk, is a metaphor. And what is it a metaphor for? What does the metaphor mean? Walking with Jesus means to listen to learn from, and then live out Christ's teachings. It's not hard, right? I mean, it's simple. People get so confused, like, I don't know what God wants me to do. Well, there it is, right there on your screen. Now, the first thing, obviously, you need to do is get saved, if you're not saved. And then after you're saved, get baptized. And the Holy Spirit, right, is the moment you get saved, the Holy Spirit is inside of you. Then you follow the Lord in believer's baptism. And then, so simple, Jesus is our teacher and our Lord and our God, what do we do? We listen to him, we learn from him, and we live out his teachings. We walk that walk. That was the goal John had for his own life, the author of this little letter. He did it for 60 years, right? From the time of Christ's resurrection until the time he died of natural causes somewhere in the 80s, John, what did he do? He listened to, learned from, and lived out Christ's teachings. What an example that we have, right? And not, not just that, that was his goal right there on the screen. That's his goal for the Christian community of his day. And if he was here today, <laughs> he would say, that's the goal I have for all of you as an apostle of Jesus Christ. I want you and I want your pastor to listen to and learn from and live out the teachings of Jesus Christ. And so let's do it. Right now, if you're looking at 2 John verse one, can you say amen? Okay, so here we go. He says, the elder to the, very interesting, elect lady and her children whom I love in the truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth because of, of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and in love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. And so when you think through all of this, you, you, you see that John had something burning on his heart, and that's the truth. The first four verses of this tiny little letter, in four verses, he says the word truth five times. See, and so what is he doing? He's showing this elect lady, right, that the truth is what binds them together. Now, David Guzik is one of my favorite comment commentators. 
Um, he was a Calvary Chapel pastor. He's still a Calvary Chapel pastor, but he's got his own ministry now, and it's called Enduring Word. You can find him at EnduringWord.com, or you can get the Enduring Word uh, app. Um, but I read him every week. He's one of the guys that I, I, I look at during the week, and so regarding this whole thing of truth uniting believers, uh, David Guzik wrote this. Check it out. Quote, what binds Christians together is not social compatibility or political compatibility or class compatibility. What binds us together is a common what? Truth. And I love this about Christianity. We can come from different social environments. We can have different political views. We can come from different economic classes, financially speaking. And yet, we're united, if you're a believer and I'm a believer, by the truth of the gospel. That's such a beautiful thing to me. When Pastor Matt Messiano and I went to Africa two months ago, we experienced this firsthand. When we went to Ghana and Togo in West Africa, listen, we could not have been more different than the people that we were there ministering to. But because they loved Jesus and because we loved Jesus, let me tell you something, there was an absolute love and bonding that took place and it happened fast. It's crazy, no matter where I go in the world, when I meet genuine believers, even though I'm very, very different, right? I might come from a different social background or economic background, right? Or have a different political view or whatever. But when I meet a genuine believer somewhere on the foreign field, listen, um, there's a, 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 a unity there. And there's agape love and it happens fast. For, for Pastor Matt and I, I mean, it was less than five minutes. We were at Calvary Chapel uh, Lome in Togo. Less than five minutes, man, there's this like supernatural Holy Spirit connection that we had with these people. And what do we do? We celebrate and praise the Lord. By the way, uh, their church services are way longer in Africa. We could learn something from our African brothers and sisters. Don't worry, I'm not thinking about having two-hour services, right? But um, man, we just celebrated the Lord and there's this agape love and there's this unity. Why? Because there's a bond, the bond of the Holy Spirit, the bond of the truth. Now look again at verse one. He says, the elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in the truth. So John calls himself the elder. And that either he's highlighting his advanced age, again, he's in his 80s, um, and he's, as I've said before, not just pastoring the church of Ephesus, but I think most likely he's also overseeing a bunch of churches in Asia Minor. I mean, if I lived in the end of the first century AD um, and I was a pastor of a church in Asia Minor, you better believe I would submit to the apostle John. And so he's there and he calls himself the elder, either his advanced age or his leadership role in the church, we're not sure. He writes to the elect lady and her children. That phrase has two plausible interpretations. Some say the elect lady and her children refers to an actual Christian woman and her kids, while others believe that the elect lady and her children, that, that John is using a code name to uh, refer to a local church and its members. Now, after studying a lot this week, I'm leaning towards the latter as opposed to the former. And the reason I'm doing that is because I know about all the persecution that Christians were receiving at the end of the first century A.D. 
So I think John's using a code name, right, to protect the local church, the pastor, and the people in this local church from Roman persecution. If you're new to the Bible, here's what you need to know. For the first 30 years of the church's existence, right, so the church is born on the day of Pentecost, and then you have the book of Acts. By the way, the whole book of Acts, verse by verse, is on our website, and I I hope if you missed it a couple years ago, you'll go through it, but the church is born on the day of Pentecost, right, and so where for the first 30 years of the church's life does persecution primarily come from? From the Jewish authorities. Thank God, thousands of Jews accepted Yeshua as the Savior and Lord of their lives, and they got into the church of Jerusalem under the pastor James, Jesus' little half-brother, right? We thank God for that, but the vast majority of Jews, and especially the vast majority of Jewish authorities, they persecuted people like you and me. Now, by the way, most of it was Jewish Christians at that time. But, guess what happens? The tide changes when there there is a man named Nero who comes on the scene. The Emperor Nero. I mean, there are not enough adjectives in the dictionary to describe how horrible this man was. He was perverted, He was probably demon-possessed, and he hated Christians so much. And so when Nero came on the scene in AD 64, persecution against Christians erupted like a volcano. I mean, it would shock us today. I've been reading a book called How Christianity Changed the World by Alvin Schmidt, and um, um, Schmidt quoted the Roman historian Tacitus. And Tacitus described Nero's brutality in this way. Now, before you read it, I want you to look down at the bottom right part of your screen. Look, look when this Roman historian lived. Okay, AD 56 to 120. That's really early. When you're studying history, the closer a historian gets to the actual events, the truer it is. Does that make sense to you guys? So this is what we're reading here is true. Right? I did I fact-checked it. <laughs> right? I didn't get it off of social media. <laughs> In other words, what you're reading is the God-honest truth of how people like you and I were treated um, in the first century. Quote, mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Whose deaths? The deaths of Christians. Covered with skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished. So you see what Nero and his henchmen are doing? They're arresting Christians like you and I, and they're clothing us in the skins of animals, and then they're letting wild dogs loose on us. Or they were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as nightly illumination. Nero offered his gardens for the spectacle. So what does that mean? This is why we have a children's ministry, by the way, because a lot of times what I say is R-rated. But what it means, I'll try to keep it as civil as possible or whatever the word is um what it means is this nero would arrest a christian he would impale the christian on a stake he would cover the christian in pitch and he would light that christian on fire and lots of them and they would illuminate give light to the parties that he would have in his garden and so that's what's going on historically speaking to christians in the first century a.d nero committed suicide in AD 68. Well, of course he did. He was probably demon-possessed. He hated God. 
He didn't get any help. And what, what's, the, what's the end road for people like that? It's destruction. So he commits suicide, and for a while, persecution against Christians wane. But then, a little over a decade later, another emperor comes on the scene. His name is Domitian. He's the emperor when John writes this letter. Domitian comes on the scene, and then persecution against Christians begins to increase and intensify, especially in the latter years of Domitian's reign when John wrote this little letter that we're studying. And so in the same book that I've been reading, Schmidt quoted the church historian Eusebius. And Eusebius describes Domitian's brutality in this way. At Rome, great numbers of men distinguished by birth and attainments were executed without a fair trial. So everybody look at me real quick. Imagine, let's just try to put our, our, ourselves in the shoes of these people uh, like you and I 2,000 years ago. Imagine if authorities stormed this, this building right now and they came in and arrested all of us and they, they gave us a trial and it was completely unfair and then afterwards, because we won't say Caesar is Lord, they kill us. That's what's happening against Christians in history. And countless other eminent men were, for no reason at all, banished from the country and their property confiscated. And so Christians in the Roman Empire, in case you didn't know, they were persecuted off and on for 300 years. We gotta know this. 300 years, that's longer than we've been a nation. They were persecuted intensely by the various Roman emperors and the Roman soldiers. The government of the day hated Christians 300 years until a guy named Constantine comes on the scene. And Constantine, the Roman emperor Constantine, he gets converted, and I'm doing this because who knows if he's truly saved or not, at least in name, he's a Christian, and he issues what's called the Edict of Milan in 313 AD, and that legalized Christianity in the Roman Empire and the persecution ended. So I said all that to say the elect lady and her children, I think it's a code name that John used to protect believers. You may disagree with me. We're not talking about major doctrine here. But let me just say this before I move on. Practically speaking, um, every single day as Americans, every single day we should get on our knees and thank God for the freedoms that we have. Every single day. Listen, listen, we have it made in the shade. You gotta study history to see how we have it made in the shade, but we got it made in the shade. The freedoms that we have, the freedom that you had today to sleep in, get up, get in your car, come here, worship the Lord, Shout Jesus is Lord with no consequences whatsoever to hear the Bible taught verse by verse. This is freedom of religion. This is what we experience in the United States of America. And we should really thank God. Listen, again, our country, far from perfect, but at least we're free. At least we could come here today. At least you can share with your uh, neighbor, right, or your friend, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ without worrying that you're gonna go to jail or be executed or impaled on a stake and burnt. It's absolutely 
crazy, this freedom that we have. And so let's be good stewards of the freedom that we have. And let's take advantage of the freedom that we have. And let's love people like we've never loved them before and share the gospel with those people. Now, look at verse four. He says now in verse, I'm sorry, verse three. He says in verse three, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. So I love John's confidence here. He says grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. So in John's mind, there's no doubt. This is a guy who's been walking with the Lord for 60 years. So he's a recipient, right, of these things. And so he says grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. All right, so I wanna look at these three gifts from God. I wanna make sure everybody understands what they mean. Grace, what does it mean? Unmerited favor. That's what grace means. In other words, you've, you've seen me do it a thousand times, right? And I'll keep doing it because we have visitors every week. You're walking your own way, you're doing your own thing, you're living for yourself, right? And you're, you're, you're sinning, and who cares, right? That's just the lifestyle, but then you hear the gospel. And listen to this, before you can get saved, you gotta admit you're lost. Before you get saved, you gotta admit that you're a sinner, and help me out, church family, the ways of sin is death, right? Otherwise, who cares about Jesus? But we should care about Jesus, because he's God's son, and the wages of sin is death, and he paid the price for us on the cross. He didn't have to do that, but he did. So you hear the gospel, Jesus died for me, he rose again the third day. You turn from your sin, best way you know how, and you turn to the Savior, Jesus Christ. You receive him as the Savior and Lord, the boss of your life, and what happens? The Spirit of God comes inside of you. He gives you new life, and God pours out on you unmerited favor in your life. This is such good news. Now, you can answer out loud, yes or no. Does, does anybody deserve this grace? Can anybody merit this grace? No, you can't merit grace. It's freely bestowed on sinners who turn to Christ in repentance and faith. It's grace. And not only does he pour out his grace, he pours out his mercy. What's that? That's forgiveness instead of judgment. And so when you think about mercy, mercy is the cancellation of the spiritual debt that we incurred because of our sins and the removal of any consequences of us having to pay the price for those sins. Why don't we have to pay for our sins? Jesus paid it all. That's why. And so somebody once said grace is getting what we don't deserve and mercy is not getting what we do deserve. So think about that for a minute. What is grace? Unmerited favor, what does that mean? Grace is getting what we don't deserve. What's that? Heaven. And mercy is not getting what we do deserve. What's that? Hell. We, we get eternal life and we don't get eternal death, separation from God, because Jesus, the Son of God, hung, suffered, died, 
and rose again for us. Praise God for that. So listen to this, everybody look at me. Grace, mercy, and then and only then, peace. So this salutation from John to the Christian community, or the lady, whatever you, whatever you wanna say, right? This salutation, along with Paul's salutations in the Pauline epistles, and Peter's salutations in his letters, it's always the same order. Grace, mercy, and then peace. Why? Why, why, why? If you're listening right now, say amen. Because ladies and gentlemen, it's not until you receive the grace and mercy of God that you can experience the peace of God. So many people are looking for peace in all the wrong places. So many people are full of anxiety, they're full of fear, they're full of turmoil, but they're going to all the wrong different places to try to find peace. But ladies and gentlemen, the answer, as I already said, has always been the same. No, N-O, Jesus, N-O, peace. K-N-O-W, Jesus, K-N-O-W, peace. I should have put that on the slide, right? But it's true. Only Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, can give you peace. The peace that surpasses all understanding. In Hebrew, it's called shalom. And so what does peace mean? It means harmony and wholeness. It means spiritual well-being from the Lord. And so the Father wants us to walk in harmony with him, and the Father wants us to have the spiritual wholeness, right, the spiritual well-being. But again, you can't experience that peace until first you receive divine grace and mercy by turning to Jesus Christ. Look at verse four. He says, I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. And so, try to figure out what's going on here in the Bible. John, right, he's in Ephesus, end of the first century AD, and either he meets this actual Christian lady's older children, or, if you take my position, he meets some of the members of this local church, and he begins to rejoice. He begins to be happy in his heart. Why? Because he observes them, he observes their lives, and they're actually walking in truth. John has a happy heart. And I submit to you that this is the experience of any Christian leader when they see people walking in the truth. Whether you are a pastor, whether you are an elder, whether you are a group leader, whether you're a discipleship environment leader, whether you're a teacher across the street or an administrator, whether or not you're a parent, when you see the people that you've been pouring into get it and walk in truth, you get happy in your heart. I get happy in my heart, right? It's such a beautiful, beautiful thing to see it when the quote-unquote children walk in truth. My brother Matt is head of school next door at CCA. He loves to see our students walking in truth. So much so, before we opened in August of 2020, right in the middle of COVID, we took the step of faith, we opened the school. Before that happened, before the first day of school, first year, he had this plaque uh, put up right outside the main entrance of the school. And what does it say? It's our verse. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. 
And it's so cool to me. It's such a blessing. This was a, like a, a let's see, four, we're in year four now, and the Lord spoke to me in year one, almost 20 years ago. This was like a 16-year dream for me to have that school across the street. And by the way, we're just getting started. But it's such a blessing to me, right, that we have teachers over at Calvary Christian Academy, and they're committed to the truth. And they're committed to passing on that truth now to 470 plus students that we have um, currently at Calvary Christian Academy. It's such a blessing to me that in a culture, right, that more and more is rejecting the truth and embracing lies, that we are absolutely committed to the truth at our school. And listen, some kids are gonna walk in the truth for the rest of their lives because of what they're experiencing right now. And for that, like John, we have a happy heart. I hope it's not some, I hope it's all. But we'll see what happens. Now it's very important as we start to wrap up the message that we define truth for you. And so if you're taking notes, the first thing you need to know is that truth, well, the living word is truth. And that's Jesus Christ. Jesus, when he was teaching his disciples, he said, I am the way, the what? The truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So what does that mean? That means that Jesus Christ is truth incarnate. That means that anything Jesus ever said, anything he ever did was absolutely true. That means that because he said it, no one can get to the Father except through me, that that statement is absolutely true. Now, ladies and gentlemen, there's such a thing called the law of non-contradiction that I learned in seminary. I'm so glad I learned it. And the law of non-contradiction is irrefutable. So according to the law of non-contradiction, here's what truth is. This is a general, broad definition of truth. Truth is that which corresponds to reality. And the opposite of truth is falsehood. Listen, it's not you have your truth, I have my truth. No, no, no. Truth is not relative. Truth is absolute. Truth is true whether you're in United States or China or Canada or South America or Russia or wherever you might be. What's true is true is true. It's true. It is absolute. It is not relative. And the opposite of truth is false. That means that if anybody says Jesus Christ is not the way, he's not the truth, he's not the life, and you can get to heaven if there's a heaven um, by other ways, then what you have done is you've embraced a lie. 1,000% you've embraced a lie. Why? Because the opposite of true is always what? False. So either Jesus is lying through his teeth, which means that he's not a good teacher, there's people who say Jesus did not die on the cross and Jesus did not rise again from the grave. He's just a good teacher. No, 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 no. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You can't go to the Father except through me. So if he's not dying on the cross, he's not rising again, right? He predicted his death. He predicted his resurrection. If that never happened, then Jesus is a liar. He can't be a good teacher. So either, according to C.S. Lewis here, he's either a liar or he's a lunatic 
is crazy or he's Lord. Now, some of you in this room, you have not bowed to Jesus as the Lord of your life. Can I just say to you, there is no salvation outside of Jesus Christ. That you've got to genuinely turn to him in repentance and faith, receiving him as the Savior and Lord of your life. And if you'll do that, then you will see that he's the only way. The living word is truth. The written word is truth. When Jesus was up in the upper room, John 17, 17, he's praying for his disciples. He says, Father, sanctify them through the truth. Your word is truth. And so we believe here at Calvary, right, because it's true that all scripture is breathed out by God. We believe Genesis through Revelation, all 66 books, we believe that it is absolutely God's word and it's the final authority for all matters of faith and practice. We believe the Bible says the truth, right? The truth about God and man. The truth about Satan and sin. The truth about forgiveness and redemption. The truth about um, relationships and love and marriage and sex and parenting and finances and a thousand other topics, right? We believe that everything the Bible says about those subjects is 100% true. That means that what should we do as followers of Jesus? We should take what the world is saying about all those different subjects and we should compare it against the unchangeable, immutable standard of God's truth, his word, his scripture, right? And if it is different than what this book says, we should throw it out and we should accept what God says. We should be lovers of truth, lovers of truth. And so the living word is truth. And the written word is truth. The question is, are you walking in the truth? I hope and pray you are. I really hope and pray that, that you are listening to Jesus, you're learning from Jesus, and then you're living out the teachings of Jesus. And all God's people said,